TFM. Welcome, boomers, to another episode of Warp 5, our dedicated Star Trek Enterprise podcast, where we talk all things from Star Trek Enterprise. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me, as always, is my esteemed co-host, Matthew Rushing. Matthew, you're looking a little blue today. Is everything all right? Well, you know, just call me Mr. Blue. <laughs> I was just staying in here alone, feeling kind of sorry for myself, and um, yeah, you know, it's... They say it's not easy being green, but I don't know. It's just as difficult being blue. I think so. Although I think the antenna on your head might be helping you pull off that blue look. Oh, thank you, thank you. I, I, um, yeah, <laughs> I, I really like the way they just uh, they it just changes my whole you know feature scape of my face. I really appreciate it. Yeah. the work was really good. Yeah, changes your attitude a little bit as well, as we'll find out today. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm a little more aggressive. (laughs) A little more aggressive, right? So today, everyone, we're going to continue our 20th anniversary rewatch and look back at Star Trek Enterprise with the Andorian incident, which is one of my favorites. And to catch you up in case you haven't seen it in a while, here's my summary of the story. And tell me what you think about this, Matthew. When the Enterprise drops by a Vulcan monastery to check out the meditation, they find a priest whose behavior is so wide with such outbursts that they know something must be wrong. Sensing this, Archer and Trip do what humans do and crash the party, a move that leads to a hostage situation and the ultimate discovery of Vulcan treachery. It's a triangle of distrust among the founding members of the Federation that provides critical background to the Star Trek story that has been missing for decades. And of course, I got a little bit of Star Trek lower decks in there with those Vulcan outbursts. Yeah. You know, sometimes they just control yourself, priests. Control uh, uh, yourself. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, it is it is interesting. You know, this, this episode really is the triumvirate of the Federation with these three species. Uh, and, you know, uh, a character too that would be really important uh, to enterprise introduced here as well so that's also really exciting i i honestly i I remember this episode obviously being in season one but i forgot that it was so early in season one yeah i remember when it first aired and of course at that time as i mentioned on the first episode of our look back here i was watching enterprise on vhs tapes because my father mm-hmm. was having to send them over to Japan. But I remember reading in the news, like the Andorians are coming back to Enterprise, coming back to Star Trek. And what was that going to be like? And, you know, I was pretty excited about it because Andorians are aliens that we haven't seen a lot in Star Trek, but they're very loved. They remind me a bit of the Vulcans in the sense that, yeah, we had Spock all through the original series and the movies. And then the next generation avoided Vulcans for a long time, but eventually we got more Vulcans. But we didn't know much about them prior to this series, and yet they were one of the most beloved races in Star Trek. And I feel like the Andorians were sort of that way in the sense that maybe it was the antenna and the blue skin. There was like something about these aliens that, that people latched onto, and I was so excited to find out that they were coming back. Yeah, I mean... 
I heartily agree. I always enjoyed the Andorians. I always thought they were really cool design. You know, obviously it's a play off of very uh, traditional ideas of what aliens would look like. Right. Which made yeah, it really yeah. fun. And of course, you know, here you have the opportunity to to really do it well. And I think by getting to kind of redesign them and, and put them in this newer format and a place, you know, you can make the antenna move and all that. I mean, everything about the work on the Andorians works in this episode. I, I think there's nothing about what they do for them that I feel like doesn't work. And I appreciate um, the the kind of idiosyncrasies of all the different Andorian characters in the episode, you know, obviously them playing up their kind of aggression um, towards the Vulcans and, and even humans here. And in some ways they have like almost a xenophobia, you know, that they play here with them calling humans pink skins, which I'm sure is a, also mm-hmm. something they probably call the Vulcans, even though Vulcans tend to have more of a almost like a tanner yeah. skin than we do. Right. But I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. all of that works. Right. Yeah. And it was interesting because it's not like they knew who humans were. It's the first time they had met humans. So calling us pink skin wasn't like some deep-seated racial comment for them towards humans per se. It was either just an observation of, hey, you guys have pink skin, or as you say, maybe it was a derogatory label that they had applied to Vulcans and perhaps other races that have much lighter skin, considering that theirs is this deep blue color. The way that they portrayed the Andorians here was interesting because we had... We saw the on the original series, I guess the most famous situation is Journey to Babel, where we have the Andorian who attacks Kirk, who, of course, turns out not to be an Andorian. And after that, we saw in the animated series, there was an Andorian in yesteryear when Kirk and Spock go through the Guardian of Forever and they see the Enterprise again. The first officer of that Enterprise is an Andorian. And then... In Star Trek Four, there are a couple of Andorians in the crowd when they're doing the trial mm-hmm. of the Enterprise crew. And then there's Data's trying to choose the appearance for Law in The Offspring. And one of the four finalists that he pulls up is a holographic Andorian, which is really weird-looking Andorian, I think. And then there's uh, there's an Andorian lounging outside in Captain's Holiday. So these are the, the moments when we've seen, we've caught glimpses of Andorians. But we really don't know how they behave. And we know that the Andorian assassin in the Journey to Babel was not really. Uh, it was just is an Orion disguised as an Andorian. So what did you think about how they portrayed them and, and how much of that is based off what we saw in Journey to Babel? And also, my biggest thought on this is how well do you feel they brought them to life as a race that we've wanted to know about for so long. And suddenly we get a whole group of them here and they're absolutely critical to the story. I think one of the things that they do here is that it's really interesting is how they create the schism between the Vulcans and the Andorians. The Andorians are a mirror for humanity in many ways that, you know, they've got emotions, they're more aggressive And you can tell somewhere in the past that something happened between these two races to create this schism. And what I think is fascinating, and I was just thinking about this today as I was watching the episode, is how this episode, if you're paying attention, it makes you wonder, will this happen between Earth and Vulcan? 
especially with what mm-hmm. we learn about the Vulcans mm-hmm. in this episode, right? Mm-hmm. We learn that they're not as trustworthy as we thought they were. And so what I think is great about what they do with the Andorians here is they show a path that humanity could possibly be on with the Vulcans if we're not careful with that relationship. It's it's much like the U.S. and Great Britain have this usually good relationship, right? But it can be strained. Right. So will that last? Will it not last? Well, I mean, I think that's the question that kind of gets asked in this episode through the Andorians because we we see how they don't respond to the Vulcans. Like they, something has gone wrong in the past to create such a strained relationship between the two. And so I I think to me there's there's a lot of nuance in this episode because of the Andorians being introduced here so quickly and then of course what they lead us to mm-hmm. with the discovery at the end of the episode. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting point. Could it happen between the humans and the the Vulcans? I think the like keeping it in universe, I think the big key is that the Andorians and the Vulcans seem to have both been aware, had space travel, been aware of each other, been aware of other races longer than the humans have. And also the proximity of the planets to one another seems to have created that tension. It's established here how close Vulcan and Andor, the Andorian system are. (laughs) There's that whole debate about Andor Mm -hmm. is a planet or moon or, which gets explained later in the series sort of retconned. So I think that plays into it. But yeah, it's true that the Andorians do not trust the Vulcans. They see them as deceptive. And the humans here already kind of don't trust the Vulcans, but they don't necessarily see them as being so deceptive in that way until here where they're, they're really seeing firsthand just mm-hmm. how much the Vulcans can lie and how deceptive they yep. can be, which is something that I want to talk about a little bit more in a moment. But before getting to that, uh, just you were talking about the US and Great Britain. And one difference there I see, though, is, of course, the the connection, the historical connection between people from England settling mm-hmm. North America and the US. I was imagining, and I'm sure some of our listeners and past hosts will love this one. Maybe it's a bit more like the US and Canada. We've got these neighboring systems who <laughs> are maybe a little bit uh, uh, observing each other in the way that the <laughs> Vulcans and the Andorians are here. But I'm just kidding, of course. <laughs> yeah. But anyway. I, I think y- the other thing I think that they really do here uh, with the Andorians is just the first. And I think the biggest thing is just they bring them back. You know, I I really think that's the biggest thing. And, you know, I I think that what it does here and by doing it so early and obviously, you know, if anybody who is watching the show then, you know, knew Star Trek, you knew that these were going to be the three races that really kind of helped put the Federation together. So putting them all kind of at odds here gives you the opportunity to have story arc structure for the rest of the series, how will these races then come together to create what we know when they're all kind of at each other's throats and they're not really trusting each other? So I think that was a really smart idea. Yeah, I love that. And it mirrors the real world as well, because Mm -hmm. some of the great alliances 
in the world today. You know, I live in Japan. So Japan and the U.S. also have this very close, tight, special relationship now. But of course, we fought each other in the past century. And often it is distrust or conflict between groups that bring them together ultimately and create some of the strongest alliances. And that's something that like we didn't know at this point in Star Trek. We knew, as you said, that the humans, the Andorians, and the Vulcans are the three... I always think of them as the three key founding members and maybe throw the Tellarites in there as well as a fourth. Another race we didn't know much about at all until this series and still don't learn that much, but we learned some. But we knew that these were like the three giants of the Federation and its founding, but we really didn't know much about what brought them together. We didn't know if they met and they all were happy to see each other and, hey, let's mm-hmm. start this big federation together. Or did the federation grow out of conflict? Did it have growing pains? What happened? And that's where we get critical background being established here in Enterprise. And that's something that I love about the series and I love about this episode. And the decision to bring the Andorians back so early in the series makes me happy that they had the idea of telling that story about mm-hmm. how these founding members came together. It also makes me a little bit sad in the long run because I feel like there was this vision that we have this loose thread running through the series that ultimately leads us to the founding of the Federation. But because the series was cut short, we get that fast forward where we get to see that founding of the Federation. But it's so truncated it's so rushed that we were we're sort of robbed of the richness of going on that journey that starts in this episode yeah absolutely and and i think one of the things that we are actually robbed of is the repercussions and the i guess slower progression of the relationship between earth and vulcan finding its way um, instead of it, you know, yeah. uh, again, it, especially in the fourth season, it happens very quickly. And that's, that, that is too bad because I, I think, you know, if you had been able to do like a, a fourth season where you knew you were going to have two other seasons, it would have been interesting to have humanity come back from the expanse and everything and then have the episode with the Vulcans happen, which I think would still work there. But that create kind of a schism that has to be repaired throughout the next rest of the season and then through season five. So by the time you get to six and seven, you can really start creating what we would know. So, no, I, I mean, and, and again, I, I truly do see them them thinking about this idea. There's there's this mirroring that's happening. And with I, I think the fact what we learn about the Vulcans and their behavior here. The fact that they're lying about their activities really it was brilliant because one, it helps solidify the relationship between Archer and to Paul because it, it she's not now starting to have to choose a side. And two, it lets us know that we have a lot to learn about the Vulcans that we didn't realize. And to me, that was one of the I mean 
this is the episode that kind of, I think, cements the fact that Enterprise is going to blow your mind, you know, in ways that you Mm -hmm. didn't think it possible because we're all assuming everything's the same. And they're saying, no, this is 100 years before that. So things are going to progress. We're going to bring you down a journey. And the show's going to be a real prequel. Yes, like It's not yes. just going to tell stories that are set in the mm-hmm. 22nd century, but it's also going to take the background, the limited background information that we have about this time yep. period and fill in those gaps. Add that texture, as Larry Nemechek and I always say when we talk about these things on The Ready Room, that we we will make the Star Trek universe richer through yep. these stories. We're not just putting Star Trek the Star Trek wrappings in another time period, calling it Star Trek, but doing something different, right? Sure, sure. I mean, and gosh, I, yeah, yeah. You could you could uh, wonder whether or not that's that's happening on certain shows now. So, um, well, but I, yeah, I think true. I think this is definitely. Uh, I think you know, kind of even thinking about my first reactions to it, I was so excited for this that we were going to be exploring the Vulcans in a different way, and I knew. You know, some fans just reacted very badly to this, thinking, well, that's not the Vulcans, you know. Yeah. But right. to me, it always made sense that characters and races change over time. And and again, I think specifically when you th- think about the ways in which that's happened in our own culture, if you look at America, how much how much has America changed in in a hundred years? You know, it's a completely different country, right? In many ways, yeah. Yeah. in some ways, not enough, but still, I I think that's the beauty of this is that they took that into account, right? Yeah, yeah. We've talked about this many times on many podcasts about how fans reacted to the Vulcans on Enterprise, but I'll just repeat here again because, as you say, it it is important and it's critical to this story, this episode, and to the series. The idea that races in Star Trek should be static is always puzzling to me. We get that with, it could be any race. Uh, The Vulcans have been portrayed as being the most different over time, I feel, thanks to Enterprise and growing. But even if you look at Klingons, you can see differences in how they behave in different time periods but but there are more on the static side the vulcans the way they portray them here it's the foundation of great storytelling like good writing good storytelling if you lifted the vulcans that we know from the 23rd and 24th century and you put them here in the 22nd century what are you going to build on and if you're trying to tell the story as we were just talking about of how the relationship develops between humans and Vulcans, how is the Federation founded? You you need something to build on. They have to grow together. If you, if you have the Vulcans of the 23rd, 24th century, first of all, I don't think those Vulcans would found the Federation because they seem to be very much happy in their own logical world of just exploring and and kind of sitting back, whereas these Vulcans seem to have a bit more human-like drive to them, not on the same level as humans in terms of curiosity and aggression. 
and recklessness like we see when when Archer and Trip break the the little wall here and find the Andorian behind that sort of reckless nature. I mean, come on, these are humans. They're in an ancient temple and yet they're happy to just bust everything up because they sense that something's wrong. That's not a Vulcan way of doing things, but it is a human way of mm-hmm. doing things. And so anyway, my point is that the Vulcans, we need a starting point and we, we do know from past Star Trek that the Vulcans do have emotions. They did have a violent history. Logic was a way for them to avoid destruction. We at least know that. So portraying what that was like, I think is really critical to the story. And so when fans complained about the Vulcans, which they did early on, and they some fans continue to complain about them even today, why did they do that to the Vulcans? I just, I'm wondering what kind of stories those viewers want because the stories that they mm-hmm. would have gotten had the Vulcans been 24th century logical Vulcans yeah. would have been quite different and rather bland, I think. I 100% agree with you. I mean, I, and and I love the way that you walk through that so logically and, and show just how, I mean... Those Vulcans from the 24th century and and even from the 23rd century don't seem like the type of Vulcans necessarily that would have been interested, you know. And so by giving Vulcans this arc to move back towards their roots and, you know, so that, you know, they could go through a reformation, basically, I, I think makes sense but then it also makes sense that as they do that they become invested in creating an interstellar culture that will allow them to maybe be less involved in the nitty-gritty and allow Mm -hmm. these other races like humanity the andorians to kind of be the ones there out on the front lines you know doing the exploring and all that kind of stuff and the vulcans will make great ambassadors and stuff you know but that's but their (laughs) goal i mean so i i think it really does i think the writers of enterprise get a lot of trash thrown at them but i do think this episode shows how they were thinking of the long game of this series and i love it i mean i think it's really really good yeah and also the vulcans here it allows the writers to explore parallels of humanity. So Mm -hmm. the Vulcans have figured out like what we're seeing at this stage is we're seeing the Vulcans like at the late stages of figuring out how to overcome their emotions and their violent nature. We'd have to go back further to see the true aggression that almost destroyed their world. So we're sort of showing how, in Gene Roddenberry's vision of humans who have overcome war and strife and and have built a better world, a better future for people, we're seeing a little bit of a mirror. It's kind mm-hmm. of offset a little bit, the journey of two races. So in that sense, the Vulcans mirror humans in a bit. And we are just further back on the path. Yeah. And I don't think humans would ever become so logical like Vulcans. There's There are different things that are influencing that path. But the the tapping down of aggression is something that mm-hmm. we, we know eventually does come along. Well, and, and I think 
one of the things I love about this episode too is that in this story specifically, you are also seeing a relationship between Archer and, and as I was saying earlier, to Paul being built. So there's a more personal part of this story yeah. where they're beginning to trust one another when she, you know, they have the whole spat about the blanket and everything. They're having a really interesting conversation together and she's beginning to open up to him and kind of let him into the larger universe that he's now a part of. And she's beginning to trust him with information. And even though it ends with her passive aggressively pulling the whole blanket to herself, it is a good beginning to that relationship. And then, of course, her dealing with the aftermath of realizing that her people have been lying. She didn't even know this, you know? And so it throws into... uh, it, it actually kind of throws her into some sort of despair in the sense of now to Paul is set on a path to be questioning everything that she knows. And I think right. yeah. that is a yeah. theme that will run throughout the entire series, obviously, especially when we get to season three and then to season four. Uh, we'll, we'll watch her really deal with some of these repercussions. And I think the thread actually starts here. Yeah. Absolutely. That's one thing that I love about the setup of the story is that at, at the beginning when T'Pol is just describing what Pajem is like, you can tell that she has this this pure, clean vision in her head of what Pajem is and its importance to their culture and not just Pajem probably, but other similar uh, um, temples and what that means to the Vulcan culture. And in this story, yeah, all that is thrown into question for her. And at the beginning, when she talks to Archer and Trip, I find it really interesting because one thing that I think that Jolene Blaylock does really well is that she perfectly captures that cold analytical style of speech that we're accustomed mm-hmm. to from Vulcans. But when you watch someone like Spock or Tuvok doing it, you feel just like, you know, they're in their head. This is just how Vulcans right. speak. Here, here you feel that way. Plus, you feel like Topol is speaking to children. Yes, like she looks down on the humans. I like she's having to hold their hand and mm-hmm. educate them about the world. I was going to say yeah. that she feels a little bit like an annoyed older sister. You know, mm-hmm. like if you had an older sister that was, you know, and I didn't, but you know, I knew people who did, where they they had older sisters that were four or five years older. This is what older sisters sound like. Super annoyed that you exist, basically. <laughs> and that's that's kind of where she is, you know, because she thinks she knows better. And in sometimes and in some ways she does. But as we are learning many times, Paul is in need of a journey of exploration in and of herself, just as much right. as these yeah. human characters are. They're just much more open with admitting it. And so, I, again, yeah, Jolene Blaylock is great in this episode. And and I 100% agree. I think it's so funny the way that she deals with Trip and Archer. It's it's just hysterical. Yeah, it's, it's great. And yeah, like you said, she needs to go on a journey herself. And we get that a little bit here with flocks because they once again eat together. And flocks is helping her along. Flocks is the one that like keeps opening the curtains for her. Think about this. Think about this. And she will listen to him more because he's 
also an alien. He's not human. I hate to say that he's also an alien because it's always putting like from our perspective, they're aliens, but from their perspective, we are the alien. But anyway, he's not human. So she will listen to him a bit more than she will Archer or Trip or the other humans. And then he has this tendency to pull the curtains open for her. And then she goes on these missions with the humans and experiences things and after hearing her setup of what Pajem is, and then when they go there, and then at the end, when she finds out that, yeah, they're hiding this gigantic surveillance facility mm-hmm. at Pajem, for her, it's really eye-opening. And as you say, it sets her off on a journey of character development, because now she really does have to question everything that she believes in. And she realizes that, okay, the Vulcans aren't as pure as I thought we were. The humans maybe are more insightful than I think they are. And the Andorians, who I've come to greatly distrust, they were on to something. And I think that T'Pol herself, she doesn't like the fact that the Vulcans are being deceitful. So that opens up opportunities for her and Archer's relationship to grow. And also it starts that it starts to break or evolve anyway that triangle of distrust Mm -hmm. that i mentioned in the opening among these three key founding members and to pole plays a role archer plays a role shran plays a role in what will eventually lead to the founding of the federation well and what's great too is that we add another layer in here in the sense that archer and to paul and shran end up in a place where they all kind of trust each other mm-hmm. uh, because of the situation that they and, and the experience that they've been through together, right? There, there's a there's a layer of trust now in the mistrust, which is really cool right. with those three characters because obviously they are going to be huge when it comes to the rest of the series and bringing these characters together and bringing these races together to create the Federation. They're going to be pivotal in making that happen. And so I think, yeah, you know, it's it's just so neat to see, the, again, there's so many layers to this, which I, I think are, are really cool. I have to say another thing that was really cool about the episode was the fact that we see Malcolm complaining about all of these mm-hmm. things that he's realizing should be procedures for when they do something, like, you know, go on an away mission, that they're discovering along the way. But it's because they didn't know what they didn't know until they did they knew what they didn't know, you know, and I think that's one of the things that also makes this a lot of fun as a prequel series is that we're showing the reasons and the reality of the situation that um, you would want to start doing certain things when you were going on away missions because you learned what not to do from bad situations. Right. Yeah. But he's thinking ahead. Yeah is the the other key to that not only discovering it as they go along but i like how she says well maybe they should check in every 10 minutes yeah <laughs> malcolm's like yeah, yeah maybe they should maybe that would be a good yeah he's idea like maybe, maybe that. that should be a standard procedure <laughs> yeah the the other thing about him that stood out to me in this episode is that he's in command of the ship when archer trip and topol are being held hostage and he receives a transmission from trip and he's very suspicious. 
And it just reminded me of how when Scotty would be in command of the Enterprise, when Kirk and Spock were away on a mission or they had been taken prisoner, something like that would happen. And Scotty would always be very suspicious. And Reed just reminded me of Scotty there as that that third person that occasionally is Mm -hmm. put in command who you don't normally think of. But when they are in command, they exhibit the qualities you would expect from a captain. Yeah, I mean, and it makes sense uh, for him to be overly cautious. And especially Mm -hmm. with the situation, you know, and and I think this really builds the Malcolm character in a lot of subtle ways in the sense that, you know, Archer talks about how he didn't recruit a security officer, just sit on his butt, you know, when something was going wrong. Mm -hmm. And the way in which Malcolm goes about this is a little less headstrong than he's been before. And he puts a lot of thought into what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. And he doesn't just charge in there like you might expect him to previously in the series. So I, I guess what I love about it is is we're really kind of getting to see his kind of analytical mind come out, um, which is really good. Mm-hmm. And I'm also glad that when he ultimately decides on alert systems, he comes up with, well, red alert. But before <laughs> that, read alert was an option. I'm glad that red alarm was not an option. Yes, that would have been terrible. Uh, <laughs> red alarm. Red alarm. Red alarm. Mm, no, no, that's... <laughs> okay, well, I think we could talk about this for a long time, but let's go ahead and start wrapping up with some final thoughts here. And I'll just kick it off with one of my final thoughts based on what we were just talking about is that the scene of Archer, Paul and Shran standing together with Archer telling T'Pol, record everything that you can, and then ordering her to give it to Shran. Shran being a bit surprised, but also appreciative, and just the looks they're giving each other, I think, sum up the central point of this episode. Even though we always think about mm-hmm. this episode as, oh, Jeffrey Combs comes back as an Andorian, and of course he was brilliant, and it was great to see the Andorians, but seeing Andorians in all their blue glory was not the central point of this story. Yeah, I, I really do agree with you in that. I, I think the beauty of the episode is the fact the performances here are great from everyone. Like, there isn't a bad performance, honestly, um, except for maybe that one Vulcan who, like, knows about, like, he wasn't great. Uh, didn't love him. He's the chief, chief deceiver. Yeah. The the underlying... Yeah melancholy of this episode though is fantastic because um and 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 all of those uh those three main characters there really do portray it perfectly when they realize that something's amok and i think in that moment archer and tapal and shran don't understand exactly how bad this is going to make it for the relations in the quadrant at this point but i think their faces say everything, which is, this is not going to go well. You know, this is, this is not going to be a good thing. And so, uh, I, I really, you know, when I think of this episode, I think of this as being the first truly, other than the pilot, this is the first truly great episode that the series has created. And what, we're five episodes in, six episodes in? So... I mean, that's phenomenal for that hasn't happened since the original series, right? Where you have a 
I feel like an episode where you're like, oh no, that that's a pivotal episode of Star Trek overall. And and this episode truly is that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. There have been good episodes yeah, up to this point, yeah, as absolutely. we've discussed. But this is like, like you're saying, this is like the after Broken Bow, maybe the first truly great Star Trek mm-hmm. episode yep. that like feels like it's really tying in mm-hmm. to Star Trek overall. As and uh, fulfilling yeah. the promise of the prequel, right? So I, I think that's what makes yeah. it really cool. Well, Matthew, it's been great talking about this. And of course, we always rate these episodes. So what is your rating for the Andorian incident? I'm hard-pressed not to give this a five. I just, you know, I really am. Um, I'm, I, I don't think it's too generous to say this is a phenomenal episode of Enterprise. But like we said, it's also a great episode of Star Trek. And I think it's one of yeah. those episodes where it's doing so many different things on so many different levels. So I'm going to go with a five. Excellent. Yeah, I'm going to give it 10 tilted statues. Nice. Nice. And I agree with the... Uh, all your points there. And we would love to hear your thoughts on the Andorian incident. So if you'd like to share those with us and other listeners, the best place to do that is in the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group on Facebook. If you're not yet a member, just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the Facebook search field, and it should come right up. If you're already a member, you know what to do. Once you're there in the Babel Conference, just look for the post for this episode and leave your comments on that thread. And Matthew and I are both in there looking at that. And also your fellow listeners can join in the conversation. If you're not yet a member and you do click through, you're going to be asked a few questions. I do need you to answer all those questions and agree to the rules of the group so that I can let you in because it is a closed group and we're trying to keep it focused on discussion of our podcasts and the stories that we cover, the episodes, the uh, movies that Matthew covers in the 602 Club and all that. So please do answer the questions. Now, if you'd like to send us feedback by traditional means of email, you can do that on our website, trek.fm slash contact. Use the form there. Choose to send to a show. Choose Warp 5, and that'll come to Matthew and me. And you can also find us in social media on Twitter. Trek.fm is our username there. That's our username everywhere in social media, Instagram and elsewhere. So find us there. But Twitter is a great place. Speaking of that email, Matthew, we do have a couple of pieces of email that we've received that I wanted to share here on the show. And we received an email from Julie L. in California with the subject, yay, with three exclamation marks. And Julie says, I was so excited to see your podcast is back. I just found you and I've been listening to old episodes. I was dreading the day I would run out. So glad to see you're posting again. Looking forward to hearing the new content. Thanks for your hard work. Man, that's so great. Uh, well, we're glad that uh, we could bring uh, Warp 5 back and celebrate the 20th anniversary like this. So, yeah, I'm really excited to continue to do so. Same here. So thank you, Julie. And everyone else, we are looking forward to hearing from you. So please feel free to share your thoughts on the show with us. Now, Matthew, when you're not, you know, trying to wash those robes that you haven't washed since the age of Surak, where can people find you? Well, it's difficult, uh, but I'm glad that um, 
They're not smelling as bad as they used to. Uh, you could find me over on social media under the name Matt Rushing Zero Two. So just you know, pretty much any of the social media platforms, just search for me there. You'll find me. Love to talk to you about things. Uh, you can also find me here on the other side of the network with the Six Hundred Two Club, uh, and that's where we're talking about all of the fandoms we love. We've got the main show there, as well as some bonus shows, Snyder cuts, as well as assembling Avengers that you can find as well. So I hope you'll check all of that out. We have a blast. In fact, uh, yeah, we've got so many great things that we've been talking about this fall with new movies coming out and stuff. So check it out. Uh, you can also find me uh, here with you, Chris. We we do the Orb together, talked about Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and then Literary Tracks as well, where I'm talking about the books and the comics of Star Trek with Bruce, yourself, and others. Um, there's so much going on there. And then you can find me on the Nerd Party Network doing two shows. One I did with Drea Kaufman. It's finished now, but we walked through every single chapter of the Harry Potter series one chapter at a time, and that show is called post and then john mills and i do a little show called aggressive negotiations where we talk about star wars each and every week so chris where could people find you you know when you're not hanging out in the mess hall with flocks eating celery oh yeah yeah i'm introducing flocks to all kinds of human dips which oh, are fantastic. perfect for celery and then flocks and i we just sit across from tapole and we just keep grabbing it with our <laughs> fingers drives her insane bet she loves that she loves it. Yeah. She secretly loves it. Uh, you can find me here doing some other podcasting from time to time. Of course, you mentioned The Orb, Literary Treks. Larry Nemechek and I do a show called The Ready Room, which started back in 2011, talking about all aspects of Star Trek and the business side as well. And then there's Interphase, which is a Star Trek Universe podcast. And then I spend most of the rest of my time working on business magazines, which I think Quark would really appreciate. Always looking for ways to keep the business going. Uh, so check those out if you're interested in hearing what I'm talking about, what I'm working on. If you'd like to chat with me, I'd love to hear from you. My preferred platform is Twitter. That's where I'm most active. So if you'd like to hit me up on Twitter, my username is C, Brian Jones, letter C and Brian with a Y. That is my username everywhere on social media. So feel free to reach out and talk Star Trek with me there. If you'd like to help us keep these podcasts going, we could really use your help through Patreon. If you'd like to find out how to support the network, please visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash trekfm to find out how. And we really appreciate the support of everyone who is helping us right now. We really would not be able to keep this going without your support. And we do need more support to make sure that we can continue on with Warp 5 and our other shows and cover all the costs of operating the network. So please check that out if you're interested. And again, thank you so much to everyone who is supporting us now. Well, Matthew, I definitely need to wash off after all the dust in these caves and get ready for next time when uh, we're going to, you know, do some comet hopping and talk about breaking the ice. Chris, let's go. Recording. Recording. Vulcan pants that haven't been washed since the age of Surak. Hmm. I was going to say blue Andorian pants. <laughs> Actually, they have more like pleather pants in this you know, yeah, right. their thing. So. Yeah, I was thinking if you were Andorian and you were really into blue and all your outfits were blue and you look like you're just running around naked all the time.
Yeah, or just a yeah. part of the Blue Man group. So, oh, God. do you think there's a Blue Man group on Andor? Mm, that's a good question. Maybe it's like a pink man group. Hmm. I can see like there's one Andorian who's really into the pink man group and he's always painting himself pink in case they need a stand in quickly. And then he keeps leaving pink all over the house like oh Tobias on Arrested Development. Yeah, basically, yeah. It's probably right. a never nude too. Oh, yeah. He always wears his pink jeans in the shower. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. 